Psalm 132. Today we return to a series in the so-called Psalms of Ascents, Psalm 120 to 134. We're nearing the end with only a few more left today, 132. A Song of Ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will, he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Father, this is your word. This is your servant. We thank you for Jesus, for his coming. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of his return. We thank you for the grace that we have in his name, for all the privileges and promises that are bought for us through his blood. Lord, may we live in the fullest light of them that we possibly can today. May we see others come to join in the worship of you through your son because of his cross. Would you give faith here this morning, Lord? Would you grant repentance where that's needed? Even for Christians, for those who have been Christians for quite some time, Lord, perhaps you would give fresh conviction about small or even great sins. Use your word today to do your work, your work in the world of spreading your renown, of getting your worship, of establishing for yourself a people, of raising up your son, Jesus, the anointed, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, we pray in his name. Amen. You could be seated. It's not very often these days that Jesus makes international news, at least not in the actual headlines, but he did this week. National Geographic reported this week on the work of archaeologists at the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre. 
for the first time since the 1500s, big marble sheets that safeguard the actual tomb were removed. Now, side note, if you're skeptical about this being the actual site for the burial of Jesus of Nazareth, I don't blame you, but I'd encourage you to go on Justin Taylor's blog, who had a great post this week explaining all this and uh, interviewing uh, an archaeologist about the, the details behind this. So I'll leave you to that, whether this is the actual location or not. But if these archaeologists are right, and this is Jesus' tomb, then realize this, that they are soon going to see the actual burial bed or platform upon which the body of Christ was laid and from which the risen Christ got up. They're not there yet. They've removed the marble slab they know that the burial bed is down there. Uh, they know that from radial imaging. But they're now working to clear out centuries of dirt and debris that was somewhere between this marble slab and then down into the tomb where presumably Jesus was laid. As I read this National Geographic article this week, I was reminded again that I don't want to be an archaeologist Archaeology seems hard and dirty and slow, even when, even when you know where to look, it still is dirt and layers upon layers. It's, there, there are steps and there are processes and no doubt red tape. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 132, doesn't really have a whole lot to do with Jesus' burial, but it does have layers to it. Like an archaeological dig, it has layers to it. Or if you prefer a tree analogy, Psalm 132 has rings upon it. Like you find when, the, when you do a cross-section of a tree. There are rings there. Some rings are wider or tighter than others, indicating years of greater or slower growth. Some rings on the tree are scarred by the trauma that took place in a certain year. And so our psalm has the rings of history upon it. It doesn't just represent one moment in time, but... There are many rings. It's a living, growing thing, this Psalm 132. And it was tested at various times. It bears the mark of scars and trauma upon its rings. Remember that some Psalms tell us explicitly of a specific historical context from which they were written and which they are about. Like Psalm 3 tells us that it's written by David when his son Absalom was after him and he fled from his son Absalom. It's very specific. It's, it's got a single ring, you could say. With Psalm 132, the only heading we have is that it's a psalm of ascents. We know that all of these psalms of ascents, regardless of when they were first written, 
were compiled together in this group later on for one of two purposes, either for those three yearly pilgrimages that Jewish people would make into Jerusalem for feast, for, for, for sacrifice, and they sang these on the way, and or these were psalms and songs that were sung by those saints who returned from Babylonian captivity after 70 long years. They returned to Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. So right there already you can see some of the rings that are upon this tree of Psalm 132. But our psalm also looks back to the days of King David. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. And then it talks about David. So there is another important layer or ring that we have to consider. Solomon, David's son, used words from this psalm when he dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles 6. That's another layer or ring that we might consider as we do a cross-section of this psalm. And then, later generations, long after Solomon, would no doubt continue to find relevance in and have reasons to sing and pray through this psalm. For instance, in those days, those varied days of different times, when it looked like the promises of old had been forgotten, had dried up, had expired, at some point had gotten broken and were now voided out. So there are several rings for us to consider along those lines. Again, there's the evidence of trauma in testing upon the tree of Psalm 132, but we also find pockets of fruit and blessing, seasons of growth and encouragement. In short, Psalm 132 tells us of a story from the time of David through the days of Jesus and the rings on this tree are stretching out even to today and beyond. It's that big. So we have our work cut out for us. Let's start digging. The psalm divides neatly into just two halves, verses 1 through 10 and then verses 11 to 18. But rather than just have two points in an outline here, I'm going to move beyond just two points. We're going to see that this psalm reminds God, verses 1 through 10, about his plan with his man for his worship. And then, secondly, there's reassurance, verses 11 to 18, that God's plan still includes all those promises and more. Thirdly, we should consider when and where such grand promises find their realization. And then lastly, we'll consider the relevance for us today. There's a reminder, a reassurance, a realization, and then relevance. Let's start where the psalm does by, number one, remembering David's commitment to God's worship. David's commitment to God's worship is reminded to God. 
The psalm, rather boldly, notice, reminds God about King David and King David's commitment to God's worship. Before we can ever remind God about his days of old, we should remember them ourselves. We should know what is being reminded here. So what is it talking about here at the beginning of the psalm? What what did David vow to the Lord? You see verse 5, to find a place for the Lord. A dwelling place for him. Verse 6, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. What is it? It's referring to the Ark of the Covenant. That big gold box that was, the, was in the first of the Indiana Jones movies. Before that, it was also in the Bible. It has a prominent place in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. So this psalm is something like an extrapolation about 2 Samuel 6 and 7. There's no need for you to turn there, but I'm going to refer to some of what's said there in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. You see, before 2 Samuel 6, for 20 whole years, the Ark of the Covenant had been sort of put aside in a barn, as it were, in a hill country, and forgotten about by many. David had heard of its sad relocation since he was a young shepherd lad in Ephrathah, another name for Bethlehem. He had heard that the ark had been stashed away in what was called Kiriath-Jerim, long name, probably abbreviation here in our psalm, Ja'ar. Now in 2 Samuel 6, after 20 years of this ark, this important ark in hiding, David goes and gets it and brings it to Jerusalem. And what he's doing is really important. He's reinstituting, he is reformalizing, he is even resituating God's worship among his people. That ark was the symbol of God's presence. It was the essence of God's old covenant worship. It's where atonement took place, where God could dwell with sinners. It's, it, it's the footstool from which he reigned in the world. In short, the ark was simply God's glory among his people. And so it wasn't supposed to be stashed away. It was supposed to be among his people because God is going to dwell among his people. And yet it's not enough for David to go get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. As we read on in 2 Samuel 6 and then into chapter 7, we see that David soon realized the oddity of sitting in a palatial, newly built, kingly palace as God, or the ark, was outside in a tent, a temporary place. And so David went to God about a desire he had to build God a house, a temple to dwell in. And in that important chapter, God responded through the prophet. God said, I'm honored that you want to build me a house. But God changed the plan. He enhanced the plan. He enlarged the plan. He said to David, your son will actually build that house for me. What I'll do for you instead is I'll build you a house 
hold, a heritage, a lineage, one that lasts forever. God's promises in 2 Samuel 7 keep repeating this word, forever. A lineage that goes on forever. A throne that lasts forever. This is what's called the Davidic covenant. It was God drawing up a a contract, as it were. It was indissoluble. It, It was based entirely on God himself. He will do it. Far from being disappointed by God's new plans, David responded with passionate prayer and praise in the rest of 2 Samuel 7. And then he got to work. He went to work. This is easily missed because here you have to go over to the sister text in 1 Chronicles to see it. Samuel doesn't keep it going focused on the ark and the potential temple and the worship of God like 1 Chronicles does. Even though David wouldn't be the one to officially build the temple, what we read in 1 Chronicles is that he made all the preparations for it. Just look back at 1 Chronicles. It's just a few books back in your Bible. I won't even read any text. I just want you to see headings if you have headings in your Bible. 1 Chronicles 21 all the way to 29. Almost, well, no, more than one-fourth of that book is devoted to David's preparations for the temple. Can you believe it? I mean, when you think of David, what do you think of? The sweet psalmist, the talented harpist, the great warrior, the kind king, the benevolent one. Well, here's what you might think of. The way it's put in Psalm 132 is he wouldn't sleep until he found a resting place for God. So in chapter 21, verse 19... He buys the land. If you go to chapter 22, verse 1, there it's made clear that David bought this plot of land explicitly for the temple. In chapter 22, he's collecting and preparing the materials. In fact, he says in his own words in verse 14 of 22, With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord. Chapter 23 and 24, there David is organizing the priests of the temple, something like 4,000 or so. In chapter 25, he's organizing the future musicians for the temple. In chapter 26, he's organizing the gatekeepers, the treasurers, and other officials who will administrate the temple. In chapter 27, he's organizing a military to protect the temple. And then in chapter 28, David gives detailed plans to his son Solomon about building the temple. He essentially gives him the blueprint for what the temple will be. And then in chapter 29, here he is still collecting more materials and summoning the people of the nation to join him in giving sacrificially and richly to this temple. I'd encourage you to read First Chronicles 21 to 29 today. 
it'll help you see how David desired a place for God's worship. Throughout these chapters, this is, there's repetition of David saying, My son is young and inexperienced, and the task of building the temple is so monumental and so majestic, i got to do everything I can do to get him there. He's breathless. Ten chapters in a row. He was relentless. He had tunnel vision. Back to our psalm in verse 1, it's called hardships. Remember all the hardships he endured. If that was a phrase floating by itself, we might think of the hardships of King Saul, the hardships of a life being threatened or on the run. We might think of the civil war from his son. We might even think of the hardships caused by his own sin. But Psalm 132 isn't talking about any of those. As the psalm goes on to make clear, the hardships are David's loss of sleep for the house of the Lord, verse 4. David's untiring work for the Lord's worship. An old Keith Green song had this great line. I used to say it to myself often in college. Jesus rose from the dead, and you can't even get out of bed. <laughs> Jesus' death and resurrection should instruct us, should transform us. And to a lesser degree, but still a powerful lesson, still the same, is King David's hardships for the Lord's presence and worship and people. We can, we must learn something from David's example here. Now, we don't want to just look back in the Old Testament for moral examples. We don't want to just see stories of good and bad guys. This one then teaches us to be good, and this one shows us why not to be bad we know that's a temptation for some Christians. I don't think it is a temptation for most of our church. We tend to know that the Old Testament is this giant arrow pointing ahead to the coming of Christ. And these stories are not merely moral lessons. They point us to Christ, to the anointed, to the coming king. We know that. And so as a church, we might be in danger of the other error of missing the fact that the Old Testament does give us examples. It does show us instruction. This is in 1 Corinthians 10. These things in the Old Testament happened as examples for us. They were written down for our instruction. Romans 15 has a verse like that as well. And so, yes, with Christ in view, yet still the same, seeing good examples and powerful warnings where we should. We can't help but think of Psalm 132 and the breathless labor of David in First Chronicles as a powerful example for us. Do you see David's passionate pains for advancing God's glory among his people? You want to know what the life of David is all about? You want to know what should come to mind when you think of the life of David? Not first and foremost the sweet psalmist, the great harpist, or the great warrior king. 
But the man after God's own heart, the man who was relentlessly passionate for God's worship. You want to see the heart of David? You take a look at the ark. You take a look at that fool dancing before that ark with all his might. He was not a king who was out to make a name for himself. His labors were not for himself. He wasn't accruing stuff and more stuff simply for himself. You get the feeling that David, especially later in life, viewed material possessions like Schindler at the end of the movie. He laments his fancy watch, wondering whether it could have bought just one more Jew from the Nazi camps. It's not that David simply was out to embrace a meager lifestyle or eschewed materialism. It was all about God's worship. It's as if he had the words of Isaiah in his, in his mind and on his heart. Your name and your renown are the desire of our soul. We should also realize by way of example that what David did, he did not just not for himself, but for another day, for another people, for a generation to come. Like Moses who labored through the desert and put up with those complaining, obnoxious, unbelieving people for a place that he would not go. So David endured hardships and laid every bit of groundwork that he could for a temple that he knew he would not see. Made me question this week, what am I doing for the next generation for the worship of God? Am I willing to build and build and build for that which I won't see? I wonder, what hardships do you willingly embrace for something greater than you? Is it for God? But Psalm 132 isn't just a retelling of David's passion for God's worship. We noticed already in verse 1 that it's a prayer made by God's people later on, asking God to remember David's passion that he might do something now in light of it. So look down at verses 8 through 10. Here it gets specific in their requests to God. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Well, these three verses are the words that we find on the lips of Solomon as he dedicates the temple in 2 Chronicles 6. We'll put a couple of paragraphs up on the screen here from Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles 6. Read along with me. Like in verse 10 here, Solomon says... Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set the ark 
in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people. In verse 15, Solomon goes on, You have kept with your servant David, my father, that you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. He goes on, he goes on. In verse 41, he finally gets to our bit uh, that's quoted in Psalm 132. Now arise, O Lord, go, go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. He prays for the priests. He prays for the saints rejoicing. He prays that the Lord would not turn his face away from his anointed. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, we read this. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple. They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord. Remember, Solomon prayed, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and your ark. That's what God did. God answered that prayer. He was faithful to his promises and then some. But Psalm 132 isn't a psalm just for Solomon or just about Solomon. Remember, later generations after Solomon would find new reasons to pray the same things. God, remember David. Remember what he did for you. Remember the covenant you made with him. They would need to say in other ages to come, Lord, arise, go to your temple. Let your priests be righteous. Let your saints shout for joy. Please don't turn away from your anointed one. In Solomon's own day, the grand promises of old would appear to reach their zenith and then, within years, appear to be in jeopardy, moving backwards, null and void. If we look at the first king's account of this, there's this growing, building, happy, fulfillment theme all the way through chapter 10. Chapter 10's the high point with the queen of, of Sheba coming and giving her honor to Solomon the king. You turn the page in chapter 11, find Solomon with many foreign wives and they turned his heart away from the Lord. He made temples for their gods. The one who built the temple for the living God caved to women and built temples for their idols and serviced and joined in their worship of false gods. In 1 Kings 12, Solomon begins to hand the reins over to his son, Rehoboam. We find out then that Solomon had been using 
harsh and fierce and cruel tactics on his laborers. And there's hope, they think, these workers think, when Rehoboam receives the throne, maybe he'll be merciful and lighten up. But instead, like a petulant new prince, he makes their labor more bitter, more cruel. And because of this, 11 out of the 12 tribes secede from Solomon as their king and form a new kingdom with a new king. From this point on in the rest of Israel's history, it is a divided kingdom. The famous, promised, blessed throne of David within a generation and a half had been corrupted and was crumbling Can you imagine being a godly Jew in the days of Solomon, at least in his later days, with a wayward king building idle temples for his wives? Can you imagine being a laborer in the days of Rehoboam when labor went from very bitter to even worse? Can you imagine being among God's people in the days when the kingdom simply parted, when God's people who were to be united weren't. With most of the tribes willfully cutting themselves off from Jerusalem, from the temple, from the sacrifices in the priesthood, from the ark of God. You might pray with tears. God, remember David. Remember what he did for you and what you said you'd do for him. Preserve your temple and your ark. Let your priests be righteous. Let your saints shout for joy. Please don't turn away your face from your anointed one. And if you would pray something like that, then you would also need to sing the rest of Psalm 132. So now we come secondly, and we'll move more quickly through the rest of our outline here. Secondly, there's reassurance in God's greater commitments. Notice just structurally, you might want to actually draw some connecting lines if you're that kind of note taker in your Bible. Notice that request in verse 1 for God to remember David actually gets answered In the second half, verse 11, remember David? The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And then the request at the end of the first section, verses 8 through 10, request for the ark and the temple and the priests and the people and the worship and the king, those are answered one by one in verses 13 to 18. One by one in the same order, Put emphatically and in the future tense. It will happen. It will happen. It's reassurance. It's reassurance in God's greater commitment. The people will write to say, Lord, on account of David, not on account of me, not on account of our time, but on account of David and his concern for your worship, remember, 
do A, B, and C? And now God responds, as it were, by not only assuring them that these promises will come to pass, but by reassuring them that what comes to pass will be even greater than what was first promised and even greater than what they asked for. Verse 13, the Lord has chosen Zion for his desired dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I'll satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. I'll make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. So here is probably the most important lesson we draw from our psalm. That God will not only fulfill his promises, however distant or void they appear to be, but he will in fact enlarge and expand his promises. The fulfillment, though it seems distant or impossible, will actually be greater than the promise. This is a reassurance for the various times in God's plan when the promises seemed broken and forgotten and voided out. Now we've already considered the need for reassurance for God's people in the days of Solomon's later reign, in the days of his son Rehoboam, in the days of a newly divided king. But just consider briefly some other rings on this tree with scars upon each of them. Consider Psalm 132 on the lips of God's people who were about to go into Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. The temple was about to be razed to the ground. Consider Psalm 132 on the lips of a whole generation of God's people who found themselves in a foreign land and under a foreign power and home was decimated. Consider Psalm 132 as a song sung by God's people who returned from Babylon. They returned to ruins. They began to rebuild the temple and the walls, but there was great opposition against them. And there was much half-heartedness amongst them. Oh, you would need encouragement, wouldn't you? You would need assurance that the promises haven't fallen flat, that God hasn't forgotten, that he hasn't given up. In those days when the temple was constructed, but no glory came and entered it, no fire came down like it did in the days of Solomon. Oh, you'd need to say again, Arise, Lord, go to your temple. Consider Psalm 132. as sung by, a, by generations who lived in times with no Davidic king. The last Davidic king was Jehoiakim in the 6th century B.C. And he was a really bad one. 
For 600 years, God's people went without any Davidic king. While the promises of old were for sons and sons and sons and an eternal reign and throne. The promises of Psalm 132, the reassurance is that David's horn, his lamp would go out, his crown would shine. How can that be true with the debacle of Jehoiakim in the 600 years that follow? Do you feel the, the growing tension? you got to get outside the 21st century. you got to get back in the centuries before the coming of Christ to feel the growing tension that God's people had. Consider singing Psalm 132 in the 400 years of prophetic silence. Crickets. God had been speaking and speaking and speaking and then he's silent. You might wonder, what good is the reassurance of Psalm 132? And why bother reminding God about the glory days of David when you're in Israel, there's no king. The temple, eh, so-so. The priests, they yawn as they do their sacrifices. So we've got to move past this then, don't we? We've got to move into the New Testament in our Bibles if we're going to understand the rings of Psalm 132. The third, there are realizations which unite and transcend all the promises of old. We've got to see where this stuff is realized. These promises are fulfilled. There are realizations which unite all the promises of old and, again, transcend the promises of old. As we turn the page from Old Testament to New Testament in our Bibles, what's the first thing we find? It's a genealogy, isn't it? Matthew begins with a genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is that genealogy so important? Well, because God had grand, eternal promises for a son of David. And for 600 years, these kings were not. There needs a Davidic king to take up an eternal throne. That's fulfilled not through an eternal succession of Davidic kings getting renewed with the coming of Jesus, but by an eternal king, Jesus, taking the throne. So it's not just Matthew who begins on this front. Luke 1 the angel told Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see how it's realized in Jesus. The promises of old all unite in him and they transcend all the promises 
as they were originally stated. We see this in Acts 2. As Peter preaches about the patriarch David, he says, David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being a prophet and knowing that, and now here he quotes from our psalm, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. The promise given in Psalm 132 was actually about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You couldn't get that from Psalm 132 itself, but that's how the dominoes fall in God's plan. And imagine dominoes falling, each domino slightly bigger than the one before. And it comes to Christ, and you can hear the base of the reverberation of this, of this dice or this uh, domino falling. He's come. He's the key of David, as we sung just before the message. Or as we read in, first, in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Remember how Psalm 132 prayed in the first half for certain things and the second half reassured and enlarged those things to come? How much more true is it for us today? Now that Jesus has come, can you just ponder with me how the requests of Psalm 132 actually blossom for us? I mean, there was that prayer and the promise of God dwelling with his people in a place for his worship. And we think of what the New Testament does with that. It, it just blows it up where Jesus is now the temple. He is the embodiment of God's very presence among his people. And more than that, he has made his people also to be temples in which the Holy Spirit dwells. God indeed has a place where he dwells. It's not in Jerusalem, and it's not in a box. It's in human beings all over this world. You think of that prayer and promise to have righteous priests. It seemed to fall flat and fall flat and fall flat until a perfect priest came. Jesus is the perfect priest who makes a complete and perfect sacrifice. And those who have that perfect intercession on their behalf join him in priestly work. They are right there in the presence of God, giving God his worship and interceding on behalf of the whole world to God. The priests. God's worship is happening all over in all of life, not just on Sundays, not in sacrifices, but in spirit and in truth. Why? Well, because that prayer and that promise of a son of David, of God's anointed, with his horn and his lamp, putting his enemies to shame, and yet himself crowned with glory, that's happened. He is the king. 
He has come. And he will come again. I wonder, if you're not a Christian, what do you think the problem in this world is? Is it just stupid people? It is that, but where do they come from and how do you think you're not one of them? What's the problem in this world? What's, if I can put it this way, what's your problem? What's my problem? What's your explanation for this? The Bible has an explanation for it. We've all, as human beings, joined Adam and Satan in rebellion against God. And that's why our kids are born with this bent towards evil, not good. What's the solution that you have in mind? What, what do you think is going to fix the problems of this world and the problems of your own heart and the problems of your kids? It's only Jesus. You need a fix that is this perfect, this glorious, this eternal, with promises this old that not only don't fall flat, but actually grow into a glorious, global, and eternal crescendo for God's worship. All the problems of humanity and all of those bulging, billowing problems of the Old Testament, they all found their fix in Jesus. The problem of the wayward priest and the problem of sin and the problem of ongoing sacrifices and the problem of, of a king who is forever and is righteous. The problem of the temple and where God's worship would be and that it would be protected and that it would be pure. It all comes together in Jesus. I pray you'd realize that today. I pray you'd come to believe it today. Talk to God about your sin and about Jesus as your only hope. And now lastly, we quickly move to fourth relevance for us today. We got to Jesus. No doubt that has relevance for salvation, for the removal of sin. But don't we too still find ourselves somewhat in between promise and fulfillment. Much like those who read and sung Psalm 132 in various ages of the Old Testament days. Yes, for us, it's different. It's not quite the same. There is much that is behind us that was ahead of them. They were looking for stuff that we can now see in the rearview mirror of our Bibles. Praise God for that. But there is still much ahead. We are still a waiting people. And as I say that, you might think first and foremost about Jesus' return. That's the only thing we're waiting for, really. The Spirit's come. He is building His church. We're waiting for the completion of that. We're waiting for all the martyrs to come in. We're waiting for Jesus then to return to end suffering and sin. But as I pondered that this week, I realized that's not the, not the only struggle of faith that you and I experience. It's not just a waiting for His return. There are New Testament promises that we've been told that we feel are less than true, less than real, less than ours, less than full at various times and various 
days, various ways. Maybe not all the same promises for you are the ones that I doubt. Maybe for you, you might feel as though you're not forgiven. You might feel, yeah, the Bible says he loves me. I don't know. Yesterday was pretty bad. You might feel like, yes, the Bible says he's near and the Spirit dwells within us, but I feel like he's a million miles away. At times, a church might feel like, yeah, he said he would give unity and cause us to love one another, but that, are you kidding? That can't apply to this church right now, you might think. His worship. You might feel there are seasons where you're just going through the motions. It's supposed to be a connection between heaven and earth. It's like a, a little foretaste of heaven, and it just feels like a glee club singing religious songs. And you yawn, you get through it, and you get on to lunch. You might feel as though you were promised the Holy Spirit to give you clarity in God's word, but you look and you read, and eh, it just seems all so old and so cumbersome. You might wonder about God's care and protection of you. You might yeah, I hear from James 1 that trials are for your good. You can even rejoice in them and you think, you've got to be kidding. You don't know what my trials feel like. On and on I could go. We're told in the Bible that he's going to make us holy. Most days I feel like I'm making no progress. The gospel is supposed to spread in this world. It's been a while since I've led someone to the Lord. I wish we saw more people here be baptized in these waters because they just recently came to faith and they were truly converted. You see, we too are a people who live between promise and fullest fulfillment. We too must be people who walk by faith, not by sight. And we can lean on Psalm 132 and we can even pray it in an enhanced sort of way because it's not just David that we're looking back to. We're looking back to David's greater son. We could say a version of Psalm 132 like this, praying to God, Lord, remember Jesus. Remember what he did on the cross. Remember his commitment to your glory. Remember the hardships that he faced. Remember his relentless pursuit of your righteousness for your namesake. Remember what he did on the cross for your people. Remember what he bought us, Lord. Remember it. Give it. Give it more, give it in full, in your timing, in your way, but keep giving us what you said you'd give us and what Jesus bought us. Remember, Lord, remember. And when you ask him to remember, then you should remember that God will not only fulfill what he said he would do, he will still do it more than he originally said. It's just the way he works. This is our kind of infinitely glorious God. He promises and then he outfulfills it, not in your timing and your way. He 
always does more than we can imagine. Ephesians 3.20 To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So remember him. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul said, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Father, help us to remember our Lord and Savior Jesus. Let us, yes, remember what you said. Let us walk by faith knowing that you have not fulfilled all that you have said yet. You've not brought some things that you've given us to their fullest. Let us believe that you will. Lord, help us to learn from David's example to prioritize your worship Make us more like the Lord Jesus of whom it could be said that zeal for your house consumed him. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your coming. Thank you for your dying. We thank you for your resurrection and that you live now forevermore. King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us now to sing your praises with the honor and energy that they are due. For your namesake, amen.